This morning, our special guest is Reverend John Dunning. I actually graduated from seminary the year that he entered seminary at Covenant Seminary in 1997. He overlapped with Tony there for a few years, although uh, they never really connected. He just kind of knew about Tony. And then in 2002, I came to this presbytery and started serving as the youth pastor, associate pastor here at Redeemer in 2003 and 2004. Uh, John came on the scene. So I've got to know John over the last 16 years or so. We served together in youth ministry in, very, in our respective churches. He was at Oak Hills Presbyterian Church, and I was here. And then for the last seven years, uh, God has called him to be the campus minister at the Kansas State University in Manhattan. And we sent him out as a presbytery that seven years ago, along with Brian Huff, to be the church planning pastor for our Manhattan Presbyterian Church, and John to go alongside to kind of grow up this church and Reformed University Fellowship Ministry together. And so we've had John in our pulpit a number of times to bring the word. And so, John, welcome again. Thank you, Nathan. It's good to be here. Um, you made me remember, Nathan, that you have the illustrious uh, honor of uh, leading the last lock-in that I was ever participated in. Um, I spent the, the next day and a half sick, and so um, I decided no more lock-ins after that. It's good to be with you all this morning. I thank you for the privilege of bringing God's Word to you. Thank you for your support of our ministry. We could not be on the campus of Kansas State University without your faithful support, and especially without your prayers. Uh, we've had a wonderful semester it's been significant in so many ways, seeing a ton of new faces, new students crossing our paths. That, And in, in almost every case, there's no explanation that I have other than that the Lord is doing this um, in our midst, and so we're thankful for that. And please know that your prayers for us are powerful and effective. Um, just so you know, there's a table out in the, in the lobby area there, the Narthex area. If you're interested in getting our email updates or uh, mail updates that come periodically throughout the year to know, keep you informed about how to pray for us, I'd love to get your information. It commits you to nothing, I promise, other than that. Um, and there's, uh, there's handouts and things on that table that you're free to take, especially if you're the kind of person that having a physical reminder or a picture to remember to pray for us. If that's helpful for you, please, that's what it's there for. So please, let me encourage you to take that. I would like you to turn your attention this morning, if you would, to John chapter 3. Um, John chapter 3, we're, we're going to consider the first 16 verses of, of this chapter. John 3 plays a rather interesting role in the life of American Christianity. Um, my brother had a friend in high school who um, was curious about John 3.16. He did not grow up in a Christian home, but um, he assumed it had something to do with football, because if you remember back in the day, at least, people would take bed sheets and spray paint John 3.16 and hang them in the end zones for all the world to see, and so my brother's friend assumed that John 3.16 had something to do with the sport of football. We also read in John chapter 3 this curious phrase, born again, which outside of the church and maybe even inside of the church has a curious standing as well. I was in a conversation with some professors this week who were discussing world events and Christian involvement in world events, and, and one of the questions came up, what kind of Christians were they? Were they Catholic? And the response was, no, they were born again Christians, as if born again was some sort of special class or certain kind of Christian. In some circles, I, I suspect even the words born again is, is equal to, the, to the, the title of Republican. 
Um, but in this case, Jesus says so much more than all of that, and we are thankful for that. I'm actually going to read for us beginning at the end of chapter 2 to set the context because it flows directly into chapter 3. Hear now the word of the Lord as I read to you from John chapter three, be, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23 through John 3.16. Now when he was in Jerusalem at, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on the, his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The Spirit blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we consider again these words this morning. Father... Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead us. Let them guide us. Let them, let them take us to the place where you dwell. We humbly ask that you would do this through your word, that you would accomplish your purposes through your word as you indeed promised us that you would do. By your spirit, we ask that he would blow this morning through this place and that we would be changed. In your name, Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. I was a math major in college. My senior year, I had to take this course called Real Analysis. Now, don't glaze over on me. I won't go too deep, I promise, because I can't. It was too long ago to remember much of anything. But what you need to know about Real Analysis is Real Analysis is the theory, the hows and whys, the nuts and bolts of why calculus works. Like I said, please don't glaze over on me here. I've learned very quickly that I was way over my head in this class. This was the kind of class, your senior, as a senior year math major, there were like six of us left by that time, and the reality was, when you have six people in your class, you get the best rooms in the, in the building. So we had, we had the conference room, we knew that we had all arrived as math majors because we had the comfy chairs. It wasn't the, the, the desk chair kind of setups in most classrooms, but it was the, the comfy chairs. But as the class went along, I realized, as I said, I was, I was way over my head. This was far beyond me. I was, in, I was a math major because I was pretty convinced it would get me a job, which is part of the ironies of ironies in my life, or one of many, I suspect. 
But I proceeded to take the class, and because it was required, I, I had to get my way through it. And one of the tricks that I learned was, even if I didn't understand everything I was doing, if I memorized the definitions of terms and some of the basic rules of how the proofs worked, I could at least get a B on my exams. And, and, it, and it worked beautifully. It was, a, it was actually a helpful way to learn what I needed to learn to make it through that class. But the reality was, I could get my B, and I could fill out my answers as best that I could, and I knew the vocabulary and I knew some of the rules, but I didn't understand what I was doing in any way, shape, or form. It was as if I had spent some time learning Spanish on my Duolingo app and was dropped off in a Spanish-speaking country. I would still be lost. I could know some vocabulary, maybe have some cultural cues to pay attention to, but otherwise, there's no way I could have a conversation. That's, that's how this felt. I had some basic understanding of the nuts and bolts of how this worked, but to actually be conversant in the subject matter was way beyond me. As we eavesdrop into this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus puts his finger on Nicodemus's heart and says, that's you, Nicodemus. You have the vocabulary, the basic vocabulary, the, the basic nuts and bolts of how you understand who God is and how his kingdom works. But ultimately, Nicodemus, you are far from him. We see that if you look with me at verse 10 in what I just read. It's, it's the question that Jesus asked. This semester on our Tuesday Night Large Group Bible study, we've been working our way through John, the, the Gospel of John, paying attention to the conversations Jesus is having with individuals, and in particular, paying attention to the questions that Jesus asks, those probing, truth-seeking questions, the revealing questions that Jesus asks. And if you look at verse 10, we hear one such question. He asks Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? He's saying to Nicodemus, you, a leader among the Jews, a Pharisee, one who is an expert not only in understanding the law, but in living the law. You see, the Pharisees were treated with respect by their peers because of their grasp on God's law and their ability to live it out, at least according to common consensus. And we're told in verse 1 that Nicodemus was a leader among this group, a leader among even his exceptional peers. And yet Jesus is saying, you have the vocabulary, Nicodemus, but you do not understand. You are not truly conversant in the ways of the kingdom. So what I want us to wrestle with this morning is that question, to hear Jesus ask us that question this morning. Do we understand these things? I want to do that by asking you three, three questions to, to really get at the heart of that. The first question is, do we understand who Jesus is? Notice how the passage begins in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. We meet, we meet Nicodemus coming to Jesus, we're told in verse 2, by night. Now, it's possible that he did this out of embarrassment. It's possible he did this as a way of not letting his peers know that he was curious about this new teacher that had come on the scene. But we know that John tells us details like this in the way that he does because John pays attention to the contrasts. And it's part of his literary style to pay attention to light versus darkness. Life versus death. And in this case, the fact that Nicodemus is coming by night might be a hint to us that his thinking, his understanding, his belief is shrouded in darkness, even as he is shrouded in darkness. But he approaches Jesus and he calls him rabbi. He speaks of him as a teacher. That word rabbi means something akin to teacher, but a teacher is one with authority. A rabbi would have been a spiritual leader among the Jewish people. His, his followers would have literally walked behind him and asked him questions and hear him pontificate on, on ethical dilemmas or deep questions concerning the law. 
And so Nicodemus acknowledges Jesus to be a spiritual leader. But is he more than that, is the question. We, we hear him go on to say in that, in that same second verse, um, he even uses a little bit of logic, doesn't he? He says, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I'm going to acknowledge something about what you've accomplished, Jesus, Nicodemus says to him. And he uses a bit of logic to say, well, surely God is with you because we see what you've done and we cannot deny what it is that you've done. But what's interesting is, is Jesus' response to Nicodemus. It's telling. Nicodemus isn't asking a question, but notice how Jesus begins in verse 3. It says, John tells us that Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you. I'm going to pause there for a minute and come back to this verse. But what I want you to hear Jesus say in that phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is doing something profound. If you grew up with the King James Version of the Bible, you, you may still hear that be said, verily, verily, I say unto thee. Do you know what Jesus is doing? When all the rabbis of his day would have taken that opportunity to answer Nicodemus with a quotation from their tradition or a quotation from another rabbi who had come before them, Jesus says, I say to you. In essence, Jesus is quoting himself. To say to Nicodemus directly and yet in a somewhat shaded kind of way for Nicodemus' understanding, Jesus is speaking not by the authority of those who have come before him, but by his own authority. Do you understand who Jesus is? Do you understand, does Nicodemus understand the one who is before him? It seems that he doesn't at this point in time. If you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings movies or the books, you may remember at the Council of Elrond near the end of the first book and then near the end of the first movie, this group of beings from Middle Earth are gathered to make a decision about this thing, this ring that they need to deal with. And several of them look at the ring and think, this is the ring of power. This will get us something. We should take advantage of this gift that we've been given. Boromir himself calls it that. He calls it a gift and says, let us grasp this ring and go with it and defeat our enemies and win the day. And silently out of the shadows, one named Aragorn speaks and disagrees with Boromir. And Boromir gets upset and says, who are you, ranger? What, what would, what, why should we listen to you? But one of the other characters knows the identity of Aragorn and simply says this. Legolas speaks up and says, he is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. You owe him your allegiance. You see, sitting in that circle is the one promised, prophesied, the one who is the rightful king of the land. You don't argue with your king. You owe him your allegiance. And Jesus is subtle and yet direct to communicate to Nicodemus, I say to you, I am here not on someone else's authority, I am here on my authority. One writer that I was actually reading this week, a Lutheran pastor, wrote this, Jesus didn't see himself as one of a long line of religious teachers, but consciously and deliberately identified himself with the unseen and almighty creator of heaven and earth. He was not just another religious teacher or guru, but he did only things that God can do. Jesus was not just another long line, one, one in a long line of tradition or other teachers. He was indeed the very Son of God. Do you understand who Jesus is? If you are not a believer, if you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus this morning, and you're here evaluating, wonder what to make of this man and who he was and what he did and what he said, you must indeed know this. 
I invite you to evaluate him not on your terms, but on his terms as he speaks to us, to us through his word. Evaluate him not as the one who was a teacher who may have said some crafty things and may have some nuggets of folk wisdom for you, but evaluate him on the one who came by his authority declaring himself to be indeed the Son of God. And if you're a Christian this morning, I ask you simply this. Is Jesus the voice of God in your life or is he one of many voices? Is the word of God the ultimate authority for you as you evaluate your marriage, as you understand what it is to parent, as you understand what it is to do your job, what it is to seek entertainment, what it is even to rest on a day like today. Do you see the authority of Jesus? Do you understand who he is? The second question I want to ask you based on this passage is, do you understand what you need? It's pretty clear that Nicodemus doesn't understand the, the response that he gets from Jesus. We go on and we continue on in verse 3. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is confused, rightfully so. He very honestly asks this question. And even if there's a little bit of sarcasm, I want us to hear Nicodemus being open and honest about what he's thinking. In verse 4, he says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can, a, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? We may be overly familiar with this passage to, to, to feel the angst and confusion that Nicodemus feels, but he's just been told he must be born again. And he's looking at himself and he's thinking about his mom and he's thinking, no way, this isn't going to happen. It doesn't work this way. And yet Jesus responds with an explanation in verses 5 and 6. He goes on to say, I truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now these words have caused confusion over the generations as we've sought to understand them. But scholars tend to think that what Jesus is doing is he's referencing a, a passage in the, from the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel, where the prophet wrote these words as the word of God itself. The promise of God was, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, I will, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to work to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all my rules. It's the promise of the movement of the Spirit of God of which Jesus speaks here when he speaks of being born again. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus? He's saying, Nicodemus, you need to be transformed. It's what he's saying to you and I. We need an ultimate transformation to know God. Nothing short of a new birth, a brand new life is what we need. Our attempts at self-improvement are not enough because we need far more than just a little improvement. You see, Jesus is not simply a better version of you or a better version of your elders or a better version of your deacons or a better version of your pastors. Jesus is the Son of God and he came to transform us because what's wrong with us is far more than simply the need of a little touch-up here and there. What the prophet Ezekiel is saying to us, we need the Spirit of God moving in us to give us a new heart, to give us new life, because what we have on our own will never, ever be enough. But with this, what Jesus is saying is he's saying that we need God to act. It's not something that we can accomplish on our own. Look at verse 8 with me. 
Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you're, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Wind and Spirit here in both Greek and Hebrew are, are the same root word. What Jesus is saying is you can't control this movement of the Spirit that I speak of. It has to come from outside of you. You need God to act to do this work of transformation in your life. Your attempts at obedience will not be enough to change you. Your, your, your to-do lists, your maxims, your ideas, your wisdom, your wealth, your strength, your power, your influence will never, ever, ever be enough. It must come from outside of us. We need the Spirit to work within us. When my, when my, well, my family still lived here. We had my wife's first car. It was a 1991 Saturn SL1. If you remember the Saturn car company, it served us quite well. At one point in time, we, we, we realized that the car wasn't working properly, and due to the graciousness of a good friend, we realized that it needed a brand-new clutch. So this friend helped us to repair this. And to repair the clutch in, the, in this old set, in this 91 Saturn, you had, to pull, you had to lift the engine out. And so he lifted the engine out, and he put the clutch in. And with, after a day's work, it was done. And, and the car worked again, and it was great. But not long after that, we were actually driving it to the mechanic to get it looked at, and it died. And when I say that it died, I mean it, it was done. It paused in the road and never started back again. In fact, we got word from the mechanic after we pushed it into the parking lot. We got word a few days later that, that the car was suffering from catastrophic engine failure. We never drove that car again. Surprise, surprise. It needed a new clutch, and the clutch helped it go for a while. But there was no coming back from catastrophic engine failure. That's the transformation that we need, beloved. We cannot fix ourselves. We're dead on the road apart from the grace of God working by his spirit. We need to be transformed, and that's Jesus' message to Nicodemus. To say you must be born again is to say God must do a work in your life to give you faith, to stir up belief, and to bring you the life that he promises. You cannot manipulate it. You cannot make it happen. Now, what this means for you and me in part is this. Church is not a self-help club. It is not like going to the gym and trying to get a better body, trying to get more toned. It's not like going to the library and studying harder to gather more information. We come here because we need Jesus. We need the work of the Spirit in our lives. If you're a believer, you are no less in need of this same ongoing work of the Spirit and the ongoing presence of the Spirit in your lives. In, in fact, it may even be helpful to, to account for the struggle that we have in this world. Our struggles with, as parents, our struggles as husbands, our struggles as wives, our struggles as kids, our struggles as siblings, our struggles as coworkers. To realize that sin is so deeply embedded into the world in which we live that the world is fractured, it's coming apart at the seams. And the thing that we need is the Spirit of God to work in us, to empower us, to enable us, to help us, to change us, to change even the things that we long to be, to be different. Do you understand what it is that Jesus says that you need? The third question, looking at verses 9 to 16, is, is this. Do you understand how to respond to who Jesus is and to what he says you need? Do you understand your response? Again, we hear Nicodemus honestly asking in verse 9, saying to Jesus, how can these things be? 
Jesus' answer is, is fairly in-depth. In verse 11, he speaks in terms of receiving someone else's testimony. He's, he's saying, we're declaring something, and the problem, Nicodemus, is that you're not receiving it as truth. You are not receiving and submitting to what is true. He reiterates in verses 12 and 13 his own heavenly authority, that by which he has come. And even then in verse 14, he connects his life to the story from Israel's history, where the people of God were dying from a plague as a result of their disobedience. And Moses was told to create a staff with the bronze serpent on it and to hold it up so that the people could look upon this thing and be saved from the plague, be saved from death. And Jesus says, that's talking about me, Nicodemus. The response in verses 15 and 16 is very clear. And it's at the same time both simple and ultimately profound. Jesus says twice, whoever believes in me shall have eternal life. Beloved, the call to response is not the first a call to action, but nor is the response a call to passivity. The call to response is indeed to believe. It's why John tells us why he wrote this, this whole gospel account, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. It is, as one woman has said, it is lifting the empty hands of faith up to God and asking and crying out for help and receiving what it is that he gives you. What Jesus describes here, beloved, is not a blind leap of faith. I'm not asking you to take it on my word. What Jesus is saying is he's, taking, he's asking us to take an honest assessment of who he is, to see how he meets what we need, and to receive and submit to his truth through believing. I don't know if this will help you, but it, but it helps me understand what Jesus is calling us to here. Think about how you learned how to ride a bike. Now, when I was a kid, we had this old bike that my parents saved to teach each of my siblings and I how to ride a bike, and it was an old beater kind of bike, and it had training wheels, and I would ride it around our cul-de-sac and, 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 try, and try to figure out how this would translate to riding it without training wheels, which didn't seem to make much sense to me. But, but that's what we did. Well, when I was teaching my kids how to ride bikes a few years ago, the advice I was given was very different from that. The advice I was given was find, uh, find a slope, preferably grassy, so when they fall it doesn't hurt too badly, and put them on the slope, and, and don't have them put their feet on the pedals, and if you can get a bike without pedals, they make these glider things, in particular for this purpose now. And what I was instructed to do was set your kid at the top of the incline and have them dangle their feet and just get used to what it is to, to, for the bike to move and to rely on the movement of the bike. And as they get used to the movement of the bike, what they'll actually learn to do is they'll actually learn to feel what it feels like to, to, to be in balance to balance on that thing, and, and, and eventually, naturally, they'll want to put their, leg, their feet on the pedals and begin to pedal, and off they go. You know what? It worked. It was amazing. Now, it didn't happen right away. I'm not a genius at this by any stretch of the imagination. There was plenty of trial and error, but, but it worked. And what I saw each of my children do was sit on the bike and learn to feel the movement of the bike and to rely on the bike and the handlebars and the movement of the bike as the wheels turned. And I tried to explain them conservation of angular momentum, but that was at a loss on my little kids. But, but what it did do for them was it helped them understand this is what it takes and this is what it looks like. It's something of that is what Jesus is calling us to. To look at what the scriptures tell us and to look at communities such as the one that you all inhabit and to say, what does it look like for me to believe and to choose to believe? 
You see, we, under, we assume that understanding, is, as Nicodemus is after here, and that is a matter of simply acquiring knowledge, of know, knowing facts, of gathering information, or it's simply a matter of just, I've got to just do the right thing, and as long as I do more of the right thing and less of the wrong thing, then everybody's going to be okay. But Jesus says, no, the Spirit must move. And I'm speaking to you a testimony that is indeed true. And you know your need. And let me help you know your need more fully. And as you do, learn to rely on me and see what happens. Beloved, the invitation is to respond to the work of Jesus through belief. This is why we're on campus. Because what we see over and over again is students very rightfully, many of them on on our campus, helpfully have the vocabulary of the Christian faith, which is what they need. We need uh, the words to understand what's happening. We need to understand the the way that the Christian life works. Yet many of them come confused or frustrated or angry or bitter or just simply wanting to be lost for a while. And so we're there to see this happen, to give them a place to wrestle with what, if I believe in Jesus the way you're talking about, the way that my parents have talked about my whole life, what is that going to mean for me? They need to see the flesh and bloodness of of our faith lived out. They need to see that among their peers. They need to see that in their churches. And that's why God has called us there to do. Do Do you understand this morning how to respond do you understand what it is to believe? Now, I want to acknowledge that there's a weirdness to this. There's a strangeness to what Jesus says and to what you may even hear that in my voice. Because on the one hand, what I'm saying to you is Jesus, is, Jesus calls us to believe. And the promise is that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. That goes outside of every boundary we could have imagined. And it crosses all of the globe throughout time. Whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. And yet, at the very same time, what Jesus is saying to us, this can't happen apart from my working it in you. That may sound strange to you. There's an author in the, in the 50s named Sheldon Van Auken who voiced his, his concern of, the, of that very thing this way. He says, I can't believe in Christ unless I have faith, but I can't have faith unless I believe in Christ. I must accept Christ to become a Christian, but I must become a Christian to accept him. Sometime later, he actually began a, a writing relationship with the author C.S. Lewis. And, and Lewis said, yeah, that's kind of how it works. And he went on to say this, you can't swim unless you support yourself in water, and you can't support yourself in water unless you can swim. Lewis is basically saying life is full of these kind of conundrums. How do you get out of bed in the morning if you're not awake? But how do you get awake if you're not out of bed in the morning? Philosophers have wrestled with these dilemmas for ages, But the reality is we learn how to swim. And the reality is we learn how to get out of bed in the morning. Van Auken went on to say this, I could not reject Jesus. There was only one thing that I could do. Once I had seen this gap behind me, which is the gap between where he stood and rejecting Jesus, so he knew he he wasn't really free anymore to reject Jesus as he had studied. He looked forward and he said, I saw a gap still in front of me, but I turned away from the gap behind me and I flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. You see, he pictured himself stuck because he, investigated, he had investigated Christianity just enough to know that there was no turning back. But he saw himself on this island between belief and unbelief. And there's this gap that said, I know too much to go backwards towards unbelief. There's a gap there, but I still feel stuck in this place that I'm not sure that I yet believe. 
And so he said, I flung myself towards Jesus. And later on he wrote this, I choose to believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, in Christ my Lord and my God. A choice was necessary. One can only choose a side. Choosing is believing. It's all I can do is to choose. I do not affirm that I am without doubt, but I ask for help. I, am, I, am, I, am, I cry out for help to pray. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. From a human perspective, what I'm calling you to do this morning, beloved, is to believe. To make the decision to believe if you do not already. And what I'm also telling you is that as you believe, as you ride the bike down the slope and begin to pedal and realize that you have this life of faith, you can't take credit for any, th- any of it. Because it is the Spirit of God that has brought that about in your life. And you rest not on your own ability to understand or your, nor even your own ability to believe. You rest on the belief that has been given you. And I say to you who already believe, beloved, this is the joyous hope and confidence that we have. It does not rest on you. Your expertise in being a good Christian your wealth, your power, your influence, your wisdom, your might, your knowledge, anything that you could accomplish in the world will never be enough. But your call as well to live the Christian life is to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that you are one of great need, but that he has, he has met every need that you have and far more that you didn't even know that you had. And so he invites you to find rest and belief. Let's pray. Father, gracious God, these words of the Lord Jesus, the promises are great and far beyond us. And yet this room, this world is filled with people who know the truth of what you have accomplished and what you have done and what you are doing and what you promise to do in the future. We pray that you would work greater faith in us. And for those who don't believe, we pray that you would work faith in them as well. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray all of this. Amen.